I don't know if you've had this struggle. I definitely have. Where you're, you're wrestling with this concept that we're saved by grace. And that everything we are as Christians is through the grace of God. And yet, you're keenly aware of places in your life that are not right. And that are very far from reflecting the grace of God. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's some anger that you have toward people, some unforgiveness that you're harboring against someone. Maybe it's some lust for things or people. Uh, it's a sin. It's, it's, it's some condition you wish you were growing more in your faith. You're lacking a good solid prayer or Bible study life or whatever it is. You're like, I realize that change is necessary. I realize that I'm not where I should be, so I need to get there. Yet, at the same time, we're told over and over that it's the Spirit of God who works in us. That it's God who does the growth. It's God's power that we need to be relying on. And so, I don't know if you can relate, but I've, I've been at a season in life, not right now, I have been, where I had such a clear emphasis in my belief on the sovereignty of God that it ran through everything to the degree in which I said, I need a change here, but God hasn't changed me yet, so I'm off the hook. Inordinate view of his sovereignty. I mean, you can't say he's too sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. But when you start to say, well, I'm just going to kick back until God changes me, that may not be the right approach. And yet, at the same time, it's precisely what Scripture tells us, is that we don't change ourselves. God changes us. So, what do you do? Like, where do you balance this concept of, I've got to tie my boots on tighter. I've got to do what I need to do. I need to take the steps and change my habits and be a better person. Where do you draw the line between that approach and, but God's got to do it in my life? So does this mean we're passively waiting for God and we're off the hook until he decides to show up and change me? Or is there something I'm supposed to do? And if I'm supposed to do something, where do you say, okay, those are works. You shouldn't be doing works. You should be relying on God's grace through faith. I went through that and it was frustrating. And I realized I can't just sit back and say, well, God hasn't changed me, so I'm not going to change until he comes and changes me. And yet, I also realized that as I changed, it was he who changed me and not me. We're going to walk through Haggai and see that there is this balance between God wanting to bless his people and yet his inability or unwillingness. I'd hate to put some words that might misrepresent God here, but... uh, that he hasn't blessed them because they haven't done their part. So as you can see, the title is Building and Blessing. What I want to look at is the delicate balance between building and blessing. It's not build to be blessed. It's building and blessing. That these are two sides of the same coin. That on one hand, we have to build, and on the other hand, God blesses. So let's be very crystal clear here before we get in, before anyone loses me or draws any unnecessary conclusions. We do not earn grace. We do not earn blessing. These are gifts that God gives to us unconditionally. In other words, you don't have to put the right amount of change in the vending machine to get what you want from God. You don't have to pull the right lever or guess the right door to get the blessing or the grace from God. That's not how it works. This is not something where it's directly a byproduct of my behavior and choices. Now, my behavior and choices can withhold blessing from me, but I don't earn it, nor do I lose it because I sinned. Here's how to think of it. We have cell phones that may or may not have cell service. And although it was really bad at one time up here, it's much better. Um, But you know the feeling, right, when you need to use your phone and you don't have service. And it's frustrating and it's not working. Your device is not functioning the way it's supposed to. Now, did my phone look at me and say, 
you know, I don't like the way you put me in your pocket. It was a little warm in there. I'm going to withhold service from you. Or, I don't like the way you dropped me in the bathroom. I don't want to be in the bathroom anyways. I'm going to withhold service from you. Sorry, some images came in my head, so it's bathroom it is. Uh, I, does the phone, in other words, pass judgment on the way I've been behaving and treating it? And is, it, is that the merit upon which I get service and reception? Of course not. My service and reception is purely dependent upon my position and my location to the service that's provided. So, if my carrier happens not to give you service down in the Valley of Enchantment, it's not my phone's fault, nor the reason I'm not getting service down there is because I am beyond where the service is provided. Understand? So I need to be where service is in order to receive service. And this is perhaps an okay way of seeing God's blessing and grace. Is he is an overflowing fountain of goodness. There's no scarcity in God. He's generous and his grace is constantly flowing. His presence, his being is everywhere and it wants to reach us. But I am not always in the right posture My soul isn't always in the right place to receive it. And so here we see in Haggai, it's a book, as I said, when the Jews come back to Israel from their captivity in Babylon. And God awakens this prophet named Haggai and says, look, Israel's been out of position for far too long. It's time that they get back in position. So Haggai, I want you to preach these four sermons to these people so that they get back in position. Okay? So here we go. In Haggai. This is around 520 BC. So we're, we're roughly 60 years after Jerusalem's destroyed. They're back. They're rebuilding the temple first. Um... By the way, before we get to it, uh, they returned in 539. And remember, B.C., you count down, right? So 520 is 19 years after they had returned. Um, They had started work on the temple around 537. They lay the foundation. And so they've been basically, they started the temple, and they, they stopped building it for roughly 15, 16, whatever years. They've been building instead, like, oh, yeah, we got it started, but you know what? We need to put a shopping district over here. We need some office buildings over there. And we need a nice planned community over here. And uh, let's make sure we have a technology area. And they're building their own civilization instead in the meantime. So Haggai's like, all right, let's get your act together. It's been long enough. So in chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, On the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So a lot of words there to say this. The prophet Haggai spoke to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest. These are the two rulers of the people. And he says in verse 2, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. In other words, you put your money in your pocket and didn't know it just falls right out the hole. It doesn't go anywhere. Verse 7, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. 
You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares Yahweh of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So the economy is not doing very well when Haggai gets up to speak. And the people are aware of it. We work and work and work, and we can't save a dime. Everything goes straight to pay our bills. It's frustrating. And everybody's in the same boat. And it even says the grain, the new wine, the oil. It even says man and beasts aren't producing anymore. So apparently fertility rates are down. Everything is looking pretty shabby. And the prophet comes up and basically says, look, you guys are frustrated. I get it. You drink and you're still thirsty. You eat and you're still hungry. Do you ever feel like that? You sleep and you're still tired. You work and you still can't make ends meet or... You hang, you, you read and pray your Bible and pray, and you still feel like you can't get your act together? I mean, do you ever feel that sense of scarcity? That sense of, it's not enough. No matter how little I eat, I still don't lose enough weight. No matter how much I save, I still can't do it. No matter how much I try to talk to them, they still won't. And there's this concept within our lives I think most of us are there in some place where we just realize no matter what, we feel empty. We feel frustrated. Haggai here tells the people, the problem is your priorities. You've put the wrong things first. If you will put God first again, then perhaps you will no longer feel scarcity. Now pause. There's a very dangerous line here where we can start to say and oversimplify this way too much and start to say, all right, so if you need more money or if you need better health, the problem is you haven't put God high enough. If you put him higher, then you'll watch the health and wealth pour in. I think that's a lazy way to look at God's blessing. And that's not what Haggai's saying. He's not saying if you guys put God first, then everything else is just going to be riches and prosperity. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's our foolishness that causes us to live in a scarcity place. But what God wants us to have is abundance in all realms of life, particularly that we stop feeling hollow inside, particularly that we metaphorically eat and drink and we're filled and we're content and we're quenched. He wants to provide himself to us. Haggai points out, first of all, guys, it's priorities. If you want more of God, put him in the center. And God's gift to us is his self. It's his being. It's his presence. And that, that will cause you to feel like, the, like God is abundant in your life. And that you're not going to look around being scarce all the time with all of your resources. But if we have a generous God, we should be a generous people. But we don't always live that way. Because I don't think we're always in tune with the generosity of God. If you put him first, Haggai says, you will see who God really is. Now, three weeks later, verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealti, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high, or the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared Yahweh. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to all the people the message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the governor of Judah, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. All right. He gives the word, they talk about it, they, they discuss, and three weeks later, like, he's right, to the hills, cut down the trees, let's start building the house of Yahweh once again. Now, you may wonder, okay, 
If God is omnipresent, in other words, he's everywhere, why, why is he so upset that they haven't built his temple yet? Wasn't it he himself who said to David, look, I have been dwelling in a tent with the Israelites forever. You don't need to build me a house. Wasn't that the same God who said that? Isn't it the same God who to us says, the building isn't as important. I'm everywhere. I mean, why aren't the Jews basically, uh, why isn't God just saying, look, you know what? Yeah, be those spiritual but not religious people and say, I enjoy God by bird watching and taking hikes and all these wonderful, great ways to enjoy God. That's good enough. The people love me. That's fine. Isn't that enough? Why is God so picky about his house being built? I would suggest that, yes, we can enjoy the presence of God anywhere, anytime. In fact, the Bible seems to be pretty clear about that. However, God has seemed to choose to concentrate his presence in certain places and through certain means. In other words, do I fill Do I feel filled when I hike the woods with the presence of God? I absolutely do. But if I replaced being with you on a weekly basis and the other Christians in my life, and if I used hiking to replace prayer and scripture, and if I used that hiking to replace tithing or fasting or meditation, Is God, I'm sorry, I, um, if, if I used all these things to replace, if I, I'm sorry, if I used walking through the woods to replace all these things, will I still have the same sense of the presence of God in my life? See, God has ordained certain ways and means for us to experience him. One in which being a gathering of people, one through his scripture, through the teaching of scripture, through prayer, through all of these so-called spiritual disciplines, these things that we do. He said, I want to meet you through these things. And here with the people, uh, Haggai is telling them, look, Yes, God will meet you anywhere, but if we build the temple, there will be a concentration of his presence there because we will be gathering in the same place and we will be experiencing his fullness together. The temple is a building, yes, but as they build it and they center their religious life, their, their uh, economic life, their social life, that's what temples did back then. Everything of a nation was centered around it. If we build this and put God in the center of it, we will begin to experience a concentration of his presence like we won't be able to experience if we were all off doing our own thing. So by building the temple, they're putting together a place, a space where they can be shaped to receive the fullness of God. We need to be shaped to receive it. God's blessing and his presence, his grace is always flowing. It's freely given. It's moving endlessly. But how often is it moving right past us? Because we haven't built our lives into the shape to receive it. We build, but God fills. God fills when we build. So, they're building the temple to give a container so that God can fill them. There's other examples of this um, in scripture. For example, I think of Hannah, who you might remember in 1 Samuel. Hannah was praying for a son. She had no children, and she felt like her husband was looking down on her. So she goes to the temple to pray for a son, and the priest sees her praying and says, look, God's going to grant you what you're asking for. Go home in peace. And Hannah goes home. But you know what it says in the text? And it's an important detail you shouldn't miss. It says that she went home and knew her husband. In other words, Hannah received this promise that God was going to give her a child. But she didn't just say, 
great. He's got it covered. And then just ignored her husband for the rest of the time. They did the next logical step. They did what was necessary to have a child. And she had a child. In the same way, God is telling the people, look, I know it's been rough. I want you guys to be filled with the abundance of my presence, and I want you to be the priests I called you to be to the rest of the world so that the world would know me through you, but you must build the temple. Hannah had to go have sex. You must build the temple. We build so that he fills. He's always flowing, but the question is, are we putting structures in our lives to capture the rain as it's falling? Are we allowing place for him to come? Think also of Moses in Exodus. Moses, for many chapters, starting in chapter 25 of Exodus, he starts to build the tabernacle. Then at the end, in chapter 40, long, hard work, the tabernacle is finally built Moses did that, right? Moses and the people put the tabernacle together. And we have a detailed account of who put what where. But only God filled the tabernacle with his presence. You see? So here we can say, oh yeah, the people of Israel did all the work. They built it. They did their works. No, wait just a minute though. They did not create a temple out of works. They did their work. They built, but God filled. No matter how well they built the tabernacle, the presence of God would not have been there if he didn't bring it himself, right? They couldn't make the Spirit of God come to that tabernacle. All they could do was build a container so that when God's Spirit was flowing and moving, it would be captured, if you will. They would be filled, So when God's presence came down, there was a place for it to be visible, a place for it to be concentrated because they built the tabernacle. And so we see, yes, they did some work, but ultimately God made the work fruitful because of his grace. Elijah builds the the altar on Mount Carmel. He could have made that altar 15 different ways and not one of those would have produced fire on the altar. It was God who brought the fire, but he had to build the altar. His work, God's grace. The container was made. The shape was molded. He filled it. Understand? This is why God wants the people to build the temple. I want there to be a container for my glory to be experienced and visible in your lives. So the people get to work. There's another reason. Actually, let's look at chapter 2. So one month later, after they start to get to work, um, we see in chapter 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, so here's his second sermon. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? So who who saw this before the Babylonians destroyed it? A few hands from the gray hairs, you know, went up. It was a while ago. And Haggai's like, okay, so you remember what it used to look like. Look at it now. So apparently the temple has been built, or is nearly completed. We're not given that detail. Um, and he says, well, look at it now. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Isn't this thing just a shabby shadow of what it once was? Yeah, you could sense some of the people who knew it before, like, oh man, this is a lame project. We can never build it like Solomon did. Haggai wants to encourage them. Don't worry about how it looks. It's not the quality of our works because we're not the ones who's going to make God's presence appear. Right? Remember that concept. So here's what Haggai has to say to them. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares Yahweh. Work. Ah, the commission. Work. Work for, it's all on you? Nope. 
That's the mindset of being saved by works, right? That's the mindset of earning God's favor because of what we do. Work to earn me? No. Work because it's all on you? No. Work for I am with you. And what we discover here is that they're not working for God's attention, nor are they working on behalf of God. They're working with him. So that when I recognize that there needs to be growth and change in my own life, God is not saying, well, if you do your part, I'll do my part. He's inviting us to work with him as we get to experience his grace filling us. So that when we decide to move forward, it's not the frustration of, I need to develop better habits, I need better willpower, I need a life counselor. I mean, you may need those for different reasons. But the emphasis is more on, um, I get to. God is inviting me to be part of the process of his working in me and changing me. God never forces himself on us. He always waits for our consent. And so as Israel begins to build the temple, that's their way of saying, God, come. We want you here. So he says, work for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. I'm here with you. Fear not, for thus says Yahweh of hosts, yet once more. In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. Well, Haggai says declares Yahweh of hosts a lot of times there, because I think his words were so unbelievable to the people's ears, he had to make sure they knew, I'm not making this up. Okay, th- I'm the messenger here. God is saying that the latter glory of this shabby temple is going to be far greater than the other temple that Solomon built with all of his wealth. You think that temple is great? You say nothing yet. The best is yet to come. And I'm declaring this. Haggai saying, declares God. He's declaring that it will be better. And you could see some of the people going, I don't know. I'm not even sure if it can stand. (laughs) Are you sure? God told me to tell you so. So yes, I think so. Well we can have far more confidence that Haggai was sure. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he made it in six days and rested on the seventh. The idea of rest being that God said, it's all done. I'm now going to enjoy the creation with my creation. God was there in their midst, and it was heaven, the realm of God, and earth, the realm of creation, meshed and together it was one that was why eden was eden that by the way is why god called it blessed the first time we see the word blessed is in eden heaven and earth dwelling in unity but you know how it goes adam and eve sever the connection heaven and earth become two different spheres they say thank you for the creation we'll run it from here god you take heaven we'll take earth and there's been a, an, an unfortunate divorce ever since. And so when we ask, why is the world the way it is? It's because we decided to be king. That's why. But God wanted to tell humanity, I haven't turned my back on you. You turned your back on me, but I'm still pursuing you. And I want to show you that the latter glory is going to be even greater than the former glory. What's to come is better than what was. So he calls a people named Israel to be his own. And he commissions them, as we had said in Exodus, to build him a tabernacle, a little space on earth where his omnipresence, presence, his omnipresent presence would be concentrated in one place so that people could see 
what it would be like if heaven and earth were one again. Then Solomon takes this tabernacle and builds it into a large-scale building, and the nations start to come and see this is what heaven and earth look like. And God wants Israel to follow his commands, to spread that glory from, from coast to coast so that heaven and earth would be one again. But like Adam and Eve, who are expelled from Eden, Israel sins and they are expelled from the promised land. And we see another divorce. So the people are now back in the land, though. And Haggai says, look, we need to have a model of what true blessing looks like. We need to have a model of heaven and earth meeting. We need to show what it's like when God and humans get along together. So let's build the temple. Let's reshape our lives around this priority of God. And they do so. And they're like, it's not as great as we thought it would be. And isn't that true sometimes? Someone tells you, if you start reading your Bible and praying every day, you'll experience the blessings of God. And you start doing it like, all I'm experiencing is a frustration if I don't get this book of the Bible. Or nothing's changing, right? Sometimes that's how it feels. But sometimes these things take time. And Haggai says, look, later it's going to be better than what you're seeing. It's going to be even better than it was when Solomon built it. Okay. Well, you go to the Gospels in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, you have this really strange scene. But I think Jesus makes it very clear what's going on. Um, In Matthew 12... You have in verse 1, Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Do you remember this? Sabbath, he went through the grain field. It was totally legal to just grab some if you needed a snack that was provided in the law. Um, very generous society. But then the Pharisees come up from the grain fields with all their camo and their little eyeglasses, and like, aha, we knew you would eat on the Sabbath. It's like, Jesus, rebuke your disciples for what they've done. And then Jesus tells him about, well, haven't you heard about what David and his men did in the temple when David was on the run and he was able to eat the bread, the showbread that was in the temple that only the priests were supposed to touch? They gave it to David and he ate it. Jesus is like, what's up now? And then he says this. I tell you, this is Matthew 12, uh, 12, verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Not in the wheat field, but in Jesus. Something greater than the temple. What did Haggai say? The latter glory of this temple will be greater than the former. Jesus stands before the Pharisees and says, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the answer to that greater glory. Because you know what Jesus is? He is the embodiment of God and man. He is heaven and earth reunited and as one. He is that walking presence, that walking temple, that walking blessed state, that walking Eden of God on earth. And he's calling the 12 around him. And he's going to have more followers who are going to be the gradual and slow extension of this heaven on earth. From him to his disciples, to the, to the people they save, to the disciples they save. To, and it's going to spread. So that the temple, the Eden, the glory of God, the former glory will be present in a people who center themselves around Christ. And in the meantime, since we are only a remnant of the earth, you have heaven and earth barely touching, just like in a temple, just like in Jesus. There they meet. It's meeting in the church. It's meeting in a people. But it's not completely reunited yet, is it? And so in Revelation chapter 21, John says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And there we have the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. And that is when the glory of God covers the land as the waters cover the sea. That is when it's back to Eden. That is when, even better than Eden, that is when heaven and earth are from every part completely reunited. It's one. It is the blessing, the presence of God concentrated 
everywhere. These are the ideas behind Haggai's words. This shabby little building will far exceed what it ever once was one day. And brothers and sisters, we're part of that building. This is good news. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 can tell us that God has blessed us in Christ. Why is Israel struggling? Why is there so much scarcity? Because they hadn't built the temple. But now the temple is being built in the people of God. And the blessings of God, Ephesians says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we're in Christ. Then we go to chapter 3. Oh, excuse me, chapter 2. There is no chapter 3. The, the third sermon. 2 verse 10. This is two months later. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat... In the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food? Does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, okay, how about this? If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these holy things, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Okay, so what's going on there? Haggai's putting out these situations, right? And basically the priests are affirming it is totally easier to make things unclean than it is to make them clean. Okay? The holy things become profane when they touch unholy things. Unholy things don't necessarily become holy just because something holy touched them. However, before you go too crazy with that, that was true in the Levitical law, but Jesus totally reverses this concept because the spirit of God in him is more powerful than the spirit in the world. And he touches a leper, and rather than him becoming unclean for his contact with a leper, it's the leper who becomes clean because he was in contact with the Son of God. Right? And so one thing we see is that the Holy Spirit is actually a presence in the world that's now making the unclean clean. So don't, don't take this as your personal application, Okay? But this is a Levitical situation. He's asking the priests. Okay, so if that's the case, then Haggai answered in verse 14 and said, So, it is with this people and with the nation before me, declares Yahweh. And so with every work of their hands and, with, and what they offer there is unclean. Okay, this is important to see. Like, they're unclean people because they're not priests. They're working on the temple. What they're doing is unclean. All right, they're not made clean because they're touching the temple. Um, what we need to see from this is what Haggai perhaps would tell us is, listen, no matter how hard you work, you're not going to earn God's favor. That's just not how it works. It'll be futile, as he continues to say, verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward. Okay, he's going to say this two more times. From this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of Yahweh, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares Yahweh. I want you to consider your effort isn't going to make anything clean. And you worked and your toil went to waste because it was your toil. You weren't working with me. Verse 18, consider from this day onward. So yeah, everything's been for nothing, but consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of Yahweh's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. When he says that they started this, the, the foundation, remember I said they started it, but then they took a break for 15 years or so. That's what he's saying. Look, just because you started the foundation, did everything get better? No! 
But since you guys have worked together, you've worked with me to finish the temple, from this day on, I will bless you. Not because, oh, good job, you guys get a reward, gold star, you're blessed. No, but because you have joined me in my work, you will be blessed. Because you've built a container for my presence, a place of heaven on earth, you will experience the Edenic blessings again. You will be blessed. And of course, I already gave away Ephesians 1 verse 3, but that's what we see in the New Testament. God says, look, because you're in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From this day on, I will bless you. Friends, you can continue to toil and see it all go to mildew. Or we can choose from this day on to be blessed by God because we're going to choose to work with him and let his grace fill everything that we're offering him. Then the fourth and final sermon in verse 20. It's the same day, by the way. So it's almost like second service or Haggai's like, oh, wait, 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 afterthought. Sometimes I wish, (laughs) never mind. You finish a message like, I forgot that. And yeah, but no one would stay if I said, wait, there's more. The word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai. On the 24th day of the month, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. By the way, the language here is very reminiscent of the song Miriam sang after they crossed the Red Sea. So you can imagine the kind of victory that God's talking about. They shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 23. On that day, we looked at that day last week, didn't we? This famous day. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Oh, that's cool. You likened a guy to a ring. <laughs> In a way, what God's saying, though, is like, look, I made all these promises. I'm going to put a ring on it. We're going to bring it to its proper conclusion. But furthermore, of course, a signet ring was the ring that a ruler would wear to put his signature on things. Zerubbabel is going to become that signet ring. Now, this is because back in Jeremiah chapter 22... You actually saw this referenced earlier um, about one of the kings of Israel. Uh, This is Jeremiah 22, verse 24. And this is where, well, how long ago were we in Jeremiah? I don't know, six months ago maybe? He says, um, as I live, declares Yahweh, though Coniah, that's Jeconiah, or that's a, 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 oh boy, I can't remember now. I think that's the nickname for Jehoiachin. You might remember the kings that Jeremiah was always after. As I live, declares Yahweh, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, so yeah, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. (laughs) I'm so done with you. That if you're my signet ring, I'm going to give you to the enemy. So the signet ring of the kings of Israel has been discarded. So that's what's significant about God talking to Zerubbabel, who is in the lineage of David and therefore the governor of the returned people and saying, I am returning the signet ring. I am putting my stamp of approval on this lineage once again. And shocker, in Matthew chapter 1, you actually see this. Remember how Matthew 1 starts? It starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Long genealogy. But you read this toward the end of the genealogy. This is Matthew 1.12. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. That's the same Zerubbabel reading about. Did you notice how many times Haggai uses the word to say, 
And you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor. You notice how many times I kept saying the son of? Because the lineage here is so important. And now we see why. Because the Messiah, Jesus himself, is born through this lineage of Zerubbabel. The signet ring is returned. In other words, the king is coming through your line. And so while he is saying to Zerubbabel, I am making you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, you almost hear him saying and looking through Zerubbabel all the way down generations to his son and saying, I choose you as my signet ring. And indeed, when Jesus rises from the dead, when he's raised... It was the very seals of the tomb that Caesar had pressed, saying, by the order of Caesar, do not open this tomb. It is those seals that break loose when he rolls away the stone and comes out. Caesar's signet ring? I am the signet ring of the God of the universe. So that day is coming when even the nations and the kingdoms and the thrones of the kingdoms of the earth will fall. All right. All of this, Haggai encouraging him to build the temple. I could not help but just feel God's call on us. He's asking you and I, have you built containers of his blessing in your life? Now, we can, we can go on and say, yes, I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm good. Okay, okay. But you're going to live like Israel did in the first chapter, where nothing's enough, and you're never going to feel satisfied. And so many Christians, it seems, in our nation, live with this, I've been saved, but they aren't experiencing the Edenic-like blessing of God's heaven and human, humanity's earth together in their lives. They're not living fulfilled. And there's a lot of frustration, and there's a lot of lack of growth and change. And Haggai is a challenge to us to say, where are we neglecting to build priority for God in our life? And so, listen, Jonathan Edwards blew my mind this week. I know I mentioned him last week (laughs) um, in light of revival, but this week in light of the blessing of God, when he pointed out, and I never put this together, that the things we Christians do, like reading our Bible and praying and going to church and having fellowship and tithing and fasting and all forms of prayer, these things are not our attempts at self-help. But I think it's easy for us to assume that's true because we're in a self-help world right now. Our culture, we've always as Americans been, we built this. We're self-made, and we're proud of that. Especially if you look at books and top sellers, they're all how to be a better you. And there's all these gimmicks and tricks in there for how to improve yourself. And that's, that's fine within its context and places, right? I want to be a better teacher and such. So, yeah, I'm going to try that. But, but, as Haggai's been pointing out to us, it doesn't matter how hard I work at being better. All that effort is going to catch mildew. It's going to go through the hole in my pocket. Nothing will add up. It'll be frustrated. All my labor in vain. So prayer, reading the Bible, going to church, tithing, fasting, serving, all of these things that we do as Christians is not to improve ourselves. These are the temples God has asked us to build so that we become containers of his blessing. He's pouring it out. The question is, are we getting the service? Are we in the proper posture or position to receive? God's not going to say, good job, Brandon. You did the one-year Bible this year. I'm so proud of you. And he might be proud of me. But he's not going to say, because of that, fill in the blank with your wildest dream. I don't know. He's not going to do that. He's going to say, Brandon, the reward in your reading the Bible is that you had set up a container in your life and you're experiencing my blessing because you're working with me. 
And so we need these containers. We need to be builders, and we need to do that together. And yes, it's very popular right now to be spiritual but not religious, and I get it. And even Christians kind of join on that because, like, we're not religious. We're in a relationship, and we can all be Christians on our own. You can be saved on your own, but I don't know that you can grow on your own. The reason God wanted the people to come together to come together to build the structure of the temple is the same way he wants there to be a church. He wants there to be a structure so that the people come together to receive the blessings that are always flowing, always being poured out in abundance, but we're only catching a glimpse of it because we are not building containers. I cannot encourage you enough to find the containers in your life in which you could be filled with the blessing of God. For me, scripture and prayer are absolutely vital and need to happen more frequently than not. Wonderful occasional things are praying on my feet in nature. That's wonderful. Meditating on a portion of scripture. You don't always get time and space for that, but when you do, that's great and enriching. Being with the body of Christ. It is so tempting in a podcast world to say, I'm getting teaching from the word. Great. That's one container you've built. But are you also building a container with believers, a fellowship together? Sometimes it's giving to someone, to your church, giving your time and serving, making a meal for someone. These are other containers we can build to receive the blessings of God. And again, it's not that he's rewarding you. It's that you have moved where the proper reception lies. And he's told us, this is where the reception is. It's in these things I've preordained. So, if you want more of me, here is the way. God's knocking on you now to stop building up your own life and to start building containers. The question is, what is it in your life tonight, and will you do it? Will you work with him? Let's pray.